Hello, and thank you for tuning in once again to the Reptile Living Room. I am your host, as always, John F. Taylor. And today we are joined in the Reptile Living Room by none other than Dr. Barbara J. King, a Chancellor Professor of Anthropology at the College of William & Mary. And today, uh, Barbara joins us in our Fear of Snakes interviews. Uh, she has a couple of different viewpoints uh, and was willing to share those with us. So without further ado, here is Dr. Barbara J. King. And today we're on uh, online with... Uh Dr. Barbara uh, J. King, um, author of Being with Animals, Evolving God, The Dynamic Dance. And I think you have at least three other books that you're working on at the current time, if I'm not mistaken. I've like had every- some other books, and I'm in the middle of working on yeah. a new one. That's right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't know how you do it. I mean, I'm an author myself, but that's just, man. <laughs> well, I've been at it a while, too, John. So. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> Basically, we want to talk to you, about, uh, Dr. King, about the fear of snakes and uh, you know how it developed in humans or where it may have come from and that kind of thing. What has been your personal experience with snakes? I mean, do you have a fear of snakes? or? Well, I do tend to have a visceral, startle reaction to snakes, even when intellectually I know they're non-toxic, non-venomous, and very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I was growing up in New Jersey and then moved to Oklahoma, and in, in those years I had very few snake encounters. But in the 80s, I lived for two and a half years in Africa. Wow. First in Gabon in West Africa, and later in Kenya in East Africa. And as you might imagine there, I had major encounters with snakes. Yeah. And it was very memorable, some of them, because there were uh, black mambas in Kenya. And as I'm sure you know better than I, they, they're very... Um, neurotoxic and yes. they're somewhat aggressive uh-huh. not a typical snake but when I was there doing my field work on baboons a Maasai friend's brother was bitten by a black mamba as he rested under a tree and apparently the neurotoxin was very strong because he died en route to the hospital which was a, a local tragedy so from that experience and the fact that I would wake up in the morning and there would occasionally be a snake in my house and I knew some of them were dangerous I mm-hmm flared up with a little bit of my snake fear. And that hasn't entirely left me. So it is, again, that fight between my emotional response and then stepping away as an animal lover and thinking that there's a great diversity of snakes. Most are not harmful. Most I want to observe. And I try to get myself in hand and let the intellect overpower the emotion. Okay. Very good. Now, as far as... um where this may have come from, um, I guess, from an evolutionary standpoint or however, you know, you want to put it, what are your thoughts on, you know, where where does the actual fear come from in humans? Do you think it's, you know, something that we've um, held on to from our ancestry or mm-hmm. do you think it's well, that's exactly the, or <laughs> mm-hmm, That's exactly the interesting question. And... In order to answer it, it's kind of relevant for me to think back on what I experienced when I was in Kenya. Because what I was doing, of course, was watching monkeys, some of our closest living relatives. Right. And there are major snake predators on both baboons and the small green monkeys that also lived in East Africa, where I was, in Amboseli National Park. And these monkeys are called vervets. And they're very famous in my field of primate behavior because they evolved to have snake-specific predator calls. 
So, in other words, it's wow. not just that they give an alarm call because they're frightened and the alarm call it stands in for any kind of approaching animal. Uh-huh. They have evolved to have predator-specific vocaliz- vocalizations that say whether they're being targeted by an eagle, a leopard, or a snake. So I've always connected in my mind that emotional shivery sense that I get with snakes with thinking that that's the primate in me kind of coming out. Right. The, the monkeys and apes that I have studied for many years are to a large degree, of course, tropical animals, and many of them have for millennia faced significant selection pressures from snakes. Mm-hmm. So it's not only the African species, but every year I show my students a video shot in Amazonian Brazil, and in it a huge constrictor squeezes to death a young marmoset monkey uh-huh. in full view of the monkey's family members, and they're looking on in oh. some kind of horror. So the idea that I'm thinking of is that we have evolved, you know, as humans to be more reactive to certain kind of stimuli in the natural world than others, and snakes are part of what we've evolved to be reactive to for good evolved reasons. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it occurs to me that in, over the course of time and across cultures, there have been lots of predators on humans. Mm-hmm. Um, just several hours ago, I learned that today there was, unfortunately, a death of a man in Yellowstone National Park by a grizzly bear. Oh. Now, it, he came to a, a really tragic end because he was hiking down a trail and happened to come across a sow and her cubs, and of course the mom defended her cubs, and the man right. ended up being the victim. But the man was doing nothing wrong, the bear was doing nothing wrong. It's just one of those things. So we know when we go to national parks or some of us in the world live out where there are bears, but there hasn't been the development, as far as I'm aware, of any kind of comparable bear phobia to snake phobia, right? Right. So it's not just that we humans are reacting to statistical dangers by animals. So I really think that looking at our evolutionary history is really helpful. Um, I wanted to mention to you a book that relates primate history to snakes in a really intelligent way. Oh, sweet. Uh, Yeah, it's by a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, called Lynn Isbell. And she wrote a book called The Fruit, the Tree, and the Serpent. Okay. It came out in 2009, and I reviewed it for a publication called The Times Literary Supplement out of London. And she is an anthropologist, and what Isbell notes is that there's a huge variety of origin myths and religious traditions across the globe that involve snakes. And she says that if we look at science, we can scientifically understand our own origins because of the presence of snakes in our primate lives. So she says that primate vision, our primate vision is very uh, acute. We are very good visual Mm -hmm. perceivers and even our large brains evolved because of the selection pressure of snakes. And what came along with that is a kind of fear module. So she and I were thinking similarly about this, and she wrote a whole scientific book about it that I really recommend strongly. Wow. No kidding. That's Mm -hmm. amazing. I'm definitely going to put that on the list of things to get. (laughs) Yes. It was very ironic in a way because... 
she and I met at Amboseli National Park in the 80s. We were both doing our dissertation research, and she studied vervet monkeys. I studied baboons. And, of course, I think there's something very deep about that experience of living out in the bush day after day when you're walking out after monkeys and you experience in some way the predators that they experience. Right. Of course, we you know, could make a, a run for it and get into our field vehicle and right. the baboons couldn't, but still, we, you know, I think that many of us felt <laughs> you know, a little bit exposed at times and snakes certainly was part of that package, so I think it lingered in our imagination. Very definitely, very definitely. Now, why do you think, it, uh, speaking of uh, culturally here, why do you think it, it, well, in my personal opinion, it seems to be more widespread in the American, well, in the European culture in America, I guess is the best way to put it, versus the Native Americans that were here before mm-hmm. <laughs> the white people showed up, basically. Um, because over in Europe, it doesn't seem like there was there's that many snakes, but then after the Europeans came here, they started encountering rattlesnakes or... Um, large constrictors in South America and things of that nature. How how does that work with you know with the different cultures and things? It seems like if you lived around it all your life, that it's just an accepted part of the world around you, really. Yes, um, I think that's an interesting point because I was reading about the role of snake images, for example, in ancient Australian Aboriginal art. Mm. And you may know of the rainbow serpent, a very important yes. agent of change for for those people. And it's similar sort of images and origin myths in the Indian Native American culture. So I do think it has to do with not only sort of living amongst, but the whole sort of mythic thing, in other words, the connection to the land, the connection to species, and not only the connection that we tend to have in this country to the cute and fuzzy species, right? You know, you go right. to the zoo or you want to conserve, <laughs> right? And it's, it's the pandas and, and the monkeys and the apes. So there seems to be uh, almost a different sort of awareness and openness to the fact that there are all kinds of species that shouldn't be ranked in a hierarchy of, you know, who's cute and who's not cute. So. Right. That, that's sort of the way that I've been thinking about it. Yeah, because a couple of the other um, doctors that I've interviewed, uh, Dr. Karen Bonder and Dr. McKinnon, um, and I think even Randy Babb said the same thing from the Arizona Fish and Wildlife. When looking at snakes, it's like humans look at them, you know, because they're limbless animals, they look at them as almost alien. Uh-huh. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And, he, you know, and they all said, you know, because if you look at a monkey, it's got, you know, it's symmetrical, it's got two arms, two legs, you know, we can identify with it, you know, it's got a face that we can see, and, you know, versus, you know, a limbless animal that, you know, swallows, you know, three times the size of its own body. With those unhinging jaws, which yeah. is very, yeah. you know, I think that's a really good point, because there's something called the cute response that has evolved, you know, where oh, okay. um, babies are um, very much big-headed, and they have big <laughs> eyes, and right. they are look very juvenile, and they get our attention and our cuteness. And so the typical thing when you show a person a baby animal or a human baby is, you know, this, oh, and they want to protect. Well, there's nothing particularly cute in our taxonomy of cuteness about a snake. So the snakes kind of miss out on that response. And I do think it has a lot to do with the the leglessness, the slither, the moving. It, It seems to us very frightening, and I think alien in almost both senses of the world. word, alien is being strange to a bipedal, symmetrical human, 
alien as being sort of our fantasy of what alien life is like. Right. And there's something that I that might be relevant to mention here. Oh, I was sure. reading a study that was conducted a while ago by two researchers who really were interested in just these questions, not so much the cultural question, but the, the evolutionary question. So they did this really ingenious experiment with monkeys. I'm pretty sure they were rhesus monkeys, where they spliced together videotape so they would make a film showing rhesus monkeys responding fearfully with their faces, either to toy snakes or toy crocodiles, which would be considered a kind of relevant stimuli, relevant to their lives, or irrelevant stimuli, like a toy rabbit or flowers. And then they would show the film to naive monkeys, monkeys who had never seen any kind of um, real snake or real crocodile or real rabbit or real flowers. And the interesting thing is that these observer monkeys, who were themselves innocent of experience, became very frightened when they saw the uh, social partners being fearful of snakes and crocodiles. So in other words, there was this kind of transmission of phobia, but only for certain stimuli and not others. And I think what that tells us is that, you know, that we start out being prepared to fear certain things through our evolutionary history, and then it depends on where social learning in a cultural level takes us and how our elders and our parents and our teachers shape that fear. In some cultures it goes in a certain direction, in other cultures it goes in a different direction. So it's not deterministic, but it's very influential. Right, right. And speaking of you know, um, parents and grandparents and what have you influencing, it reminds me about uh, the culture in India, and there's a whole, um, I don't know, the proper term for it, but there's basically a whole subculture, I guess, that actually this is their livelihood, and this is what they do is they go out and capture cobras that come mm -hmm. into, you know, houses or whatever, you know, and they know them as the snake people, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just amazing that, you know, you'll see, you know, a five-year-old child, you know, just cruising around with a cobra like it's nothing, you know, <laughs> where, where yeah. an American mom would, you know, come you know, most likely unhinged and be like, what, you know, what are you doing? Are you insane? You know, and this, and this child's just like, what are you talking about? This is, it's a snake. What? You know? This is life. Yeah, exactly. that's a perfect, perfect illustration of, of my point because I don't want to be misunderstood to be saying that we have some kind of, you know, immutable instinct about snakes that right. can't be changed. And, and the five-year-old boy from India is a perfect example. You know, he grew around, up around people who just think it's part of everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, you know, right now I find that there's a branch of science that's really big on saying that we're, we're trapped by our instincts. And I don't think it's that at all. I think there's this tendency to go in one direction or another that's then very acutely shaped mm -hmm. by culture. And, and I wonder if you, if you know, are there any cross-cultural data on snake fear of in the general population in, say, you know, India versus United States? You know, I've been looking, and I still have yet to find anyone that's actually done any research on it to actually, mm -hmm. you know, show data that, you know, um, this culture, uh, you know, worships snakes, this culture is fearful of them, and, you know, anything like that. Um, because I know in some parts of India, the cobra is actually revered. Mm -hmm. And there's actually, you know, whole festivals revolving around the cobra and things of that nature. So it's, 
you know, I don't know. Um, it could be that I'm looking in the wrong places. <laughs> well, I haven't found it either, so oh, okay, we're, we're both out of luck there. Um, it's, it's very interesting that um, one of the archaeological sites that I'm most interested in comes from about 11,000 years ago in Turkey, and it is rife with snake images in what's interpreted, at least, as a religious context. And so that makes me wonder, you know, how far back snakes were worshipped, and I don't think we really know that. But this site is called Gobekli Tepe, and it's on a hillside in Turkey that's quite near the country of Syria now. And Hmm. people who built this site uh, were hunter-gatherers, so they were people who... They hadn't settled in houses. They did not farm crops. They didn't keep domesticated animals. They were roaming people, our nomadic ancestors. And yet they did this incredible, monumental architecture of stone rings and T-shaped pillars, and they carved on these pillars all kinds of animal images, and snakes are fairly prominent among them. So the the German archaeologist who excavated this site, for various reasons, has concluded that it's likely to be a ceremonial center and even more than that, a temple. And it makes you think, because the animal images are not of those cute, furry types of animals we were talking about earlier, but scorpions and snakes and fierce types of animals. So the questions are, are... greater, really, than the answers. You know, what was happening? Were people using these as totem animals to take on the fierceness of snakes? Did they incorporate snakes in some way into an outright religion? You know, we don't know, but it just extends for me the mystery of snakes, you know, way back into our past, into our prehistory, in a really neat way. Very definitely. Very definitely. Now, speaking of some of the legends of snakes, we were talking about the uh, rainbow serpent, and then... um, some of the creation myths that involve snakes uh, that I've heard of personally, is there anything that you can um, attribute that to, or is it just, I mean, how do these myths develop? Are we, do we have any knowledge of that as of today? No, I don't, I don't think we do, or at least I can tell you that I am not so sure, except that it seems to me very much part of the human mind uh, way back in time right. to ask, why, where did we come from, and then to make the answer linked to the animal connection. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my other colleagues, Pat Shipman, who's also an anthropologist, has just this summer published a book called The Animal Connection. And she very uh, generously cites my work in there. But she's talking about how, from the very beginning, humans, of course, and other animals Mm co-evolved. And the thing that interests me so much is that I think we as a species have been very affected by snakes. I mean, both in the way that Isabel writes about with eyes and brains, and in the way you're asking about now, that there's something so compelling about them that we take them and we build our myths around them, and we want to use them to help understand our own place in the world. I don't think we know much more about it except to say that it is so cross-cultural and so widespread that it's a real human need to figure out these answers. And that, I think, is is really fascinating. So in terms of, you know, being an anthropologist, for me the big picture of all this thinking about snakes is that these species that are so different, you know, primate and reptile, Mm -hmm. um, big and little, quadrupedal and legless, sentient and maybe not sentient, all have affected each other. 
so if you walk into the Hall of Human Origins at the Smithsonian in Washington, let's say, you get to see all this wonderful stuff about how humans evolved, but it's just humans. It's our species in isolation. Right. And there's a, this whole other story that could be told about the weaving together of behaviors and responses and vision and brains, and, and snakes are all part of that from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of uh, behaviors and snakes, <clears throat> you mentioned earlier that uh, you were talking about, the I believe it was the vervet monkeys, mm-hmm. having specific alarm calls for, you know, eagles or snakes or what have you. Have you uh, had any encounters with uh, snakes and monkeys, you know, at the same time, being in the same place? Uh, any personal experiences that you can relate to the audience? Um, not, not so much as uh, with a snake and a monkey together. I had close encounters with snakes when I was in Kenya, but there were no monkeys around. Oh, okay. So we were driving out one day to find the baboons. They tended to not respect national borders, so they would <laughs> hightail it off, you know, out of Kenya into Tanzania, and we would sort of cautiously cross the border and look for them. So right. we had this truck that we would drive with the Amboseli Baboon Project on it, and one time as we were driving very slowly looking for baboons, to my real shock, a snake just reared up and struck the glass window. And I had been thinking for you know, what would have happened if the window hadn't been rolled up. You know, it just they would just sort of appear. They would come in the house. I wasn't used to this at all. So they were, you know, really pretty ubiquitous. And then we would hear the monkeys calling for them. But very rarely did we actually see the snakes. And I wondered if that was because the monkeys had such acute vision that they just sort of took off, and I would follow them, and I never saw the snake that caused the whole problem. Right, right, okay. <laughs> Some um, researchers that I really admire, their names are Robert Safarth and Dorothy Cheney, mm-hmm. actually noticed that, you know, monkeys, vervet monkeys, are very, very good at vocally responding to snakes, but they don't seem to follow or to recognize, like a python track, for example, as danger. You know, after everything we've been talking about, you might assume that if monkeys saw a python track, they'd go the other way. But these researchers actually watched the monkeys follow a python track right into a bush, sort of, you know, stupidly, not very well evolved. So that was really surprising to me. I mean, we looked a lot for snake tracks, and we would go backwards away from right. the snake tracks, and the monkeys would just blunder forward, but I I never did see a predator attack. Um, I would see monkeys sort of, you know, looking very occasionally at a snake, but it was nothing very dramatic. Right, right. I we know. are rescue cats here in Virginia, my husband and I, and we tend to have closer encounters between rescue cats and black rat snakes in our front yard than anything I saw in Kenya. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Now, as far as the uh, religious aspect and the snakes thing, um, you know, I'm sure everyone's pretty much aware of it, you know, that, uh, you know, the whole Adam and Eve story and the the serpent and, you know, what have you. Now, and then you, you know, fast forward however, you know, 2,000 or however many years it's been since, you know, the Bible was originally written, and now we have people in certain religious aspects here in the States that take uh, one specific top, uh, one specific, I think it's a sentence in the Bible, uh, that, you know, you can take up serpents and, you know, and not be envenomated, basically, is what it boils mm. down to. Any thoughts on where this is, you know, where all this came from? I mean, 
meaning uh, with the religion aspect of it, it, do you think that further enhances the fear of snakes versus, you know? Hmm. I would imagine that if a person is a biblical literalist, you know, and really takes the word of the Bible uh, literally, mm-hmm. then it could be a possible explanation. Um, the sort of uh, biblical interpretation that the churches I know, the people I know do, you know, consider the Bible to be more metaphoric. And in mm-hmm. that case, I'm not so sure that there could be a direct link. So I think it very much depends on how creatively one is, you know, reading the Bible, mm-hmm. and that's probably all I want to say about that. Oh, no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Definitely. Very definitely. Now, do you notice any, um, as far as um, in primate behavior, um, outside of snakes, is there any other fear of reptiles in, in the primate uh, standpoint that you've noticed or had any research done? Or? Well, there's, there's definitely a lot of curiosity in a number of species. If you have, for example, lizards, you know, or even turtles I've seen. But um, interestingly, at least in personal experience, I would have to confirm this scientifically with the literature, it does seem to me that snakes are quite different in terms of a primate response. And I would assume that would be because at least the other reptiles that I'm familiar with living in tropical areas are not predatory on primates. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know I've seen, um, it it had to have been South America, there was a... um, a turtle was trying to come out and bask on the shoreline, and this little monkey, you know, and the turtle was obviously smaller. The little monkey would walk up and kept pushing him back in the water like he was trying to save him or something. It was really ah. funny. I don't remember where, <laughs> what the monkey was doing, but he just decided this turtle needed to be back in the water and not on the land. Well, that is interesting because I, I think it kind of fits with my idea that, you know, I sometimes joke that the monkeys and apes that I look at, I've looked a lot at chimpanzees and gorillas and baboons, are sort of early naturalists because they seem quite struck by watching wildlife, you know, non-predatory wildlife, and being very interested in mm-hmm. patterns of other animals like right. that. And I think, you know, there were different trajectories. You can afford to be curious if you're not about to be somebody's lunch, and, you know, right. if you are... Um, <laughs> going to be struck by a snake or squeezed by a snake, you know, probably not bothering to observe it too closely, but right. just get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm very interested uh, in my writing, both in, in my recent book, Being with Animals, and the book that I'm writing now, which is going to be about animal emotions, specifically as related to expressions of animal grief, mm-hmm. in understanding how science is really turning a tide, if you will, and we're coming to see how much emotion a lot of animals really feel and really express, especially when they're social species. Right. And I was wondering if you could answer a question for me. And oh, is, sure. Is anyone really thinking about personality or temperament in snakes or maybe reptiles in general? <clears throat> you know, I, I have said that for years. Oh, cool. Um, my personal experience, I am, you know, I've handled probably 200-plus reptiles at least uh-huh. at minimum. Um they definitely have personalities. Oh, I love it. Okay. Some snakes just would rather eat you than look at you. Other snakes are like, okay, fine, you can handle me for five minutes, but then we're done. I want to mm-hmm. go back mm-hmm. <laughs> to be left alone. Um, uh, a lot of lizards definitely have a personality. Some want to are totally intent on watching what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's them wanting to figure out what's going on 
or if they're just interested in, you know, that somebody's moving about the house. Because fish will do that. Fish, you know, you walk by a fish tank and they all run to the top because you know, yes. <laughs> we want to eat food, you know. And <coughs> most of my lizards that I've kept over the years, there's only been a couple that would actually react that way to me. And these were like bearded dragons or I guess I guess the best way to put it would be the higher, uh, higher up on the echelon of food chain uh-huh. or evolution or whatever. Uh-huh. Um you know, one would specifically, if I would have a bag of blueberries, she would actually see the blueberries, and she knew what that was, and she would react to it. Hmm. So, um, and then, as long as you didn't mess with her while she was eating, she was fine. Oh, know, But if you tried to pull her out while she was eating, she'd thrash and hiss and blow up uh-huh. and, you know, do all this display stuff. And so, yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely believe there's... Uh, definitely personalities and uh i think both are very very intelligent i hear a lot of people talking about you know all stupid reptiles you know you know they're not stupid (laughs) yeah well i've just started to write a little bit about turtles and tortoises in exactly that vein of how my early on my assumptions were very much sort of biased towards mammals and how I, the more I read about birds and the more I read about reptiles, you know, I'm really beginning to rethink. But I, I still think, well, I'm an anthropologist, so of course I tend to study species that are more closely related to us in evolutionary time. But it's really a big revolution, I think, in animal behavior in beginning to think so much more broadly about the umbrella of intelligence and emotion, which is really cool. Yeah, very definitely. Because, I mean, I just recently uh, interviewed Dr. Rulon Clark uh, from SDSU. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, some of his research points to the fact that, you know, rattlesnakes will actually pick out certain areas and learn that, okay, I'm not getting food at this site, so I'm going to move to this other site. Oh, right. And they're actually, you know, and we were talking about how snakes make choices because, you know, some people will buy um, uh, frozen rodents for food. Yeah. And they'll buy uh, a size too large and the snake won't eat it. And they think, oh, well, it's something to do with the color, or it's this, it's that. And it's like, no. <laughs> the snake knows that, that it's not going to fit. <laughs> so oh, it see. doesn't eat it. Right. You so know? the snake has outsmarted the human. Right. The snake has outsmarted yeah. the human, you know. And it's like, ugh. And then there's been cases of when I used to work in pet shops where people would come in and actually specifically order, you know, I need a white, you know, medium rat. Well, why does it have to be white? Well, you know, long time ago, somebody fed this snake a black rat and was injured by the rat because ah. it wasn't pre-killed, and the snake remembered anything black. I was, oh, memory, yes. Right. Anything, wow. Anything black is now dangerous. Wow. And I asked, you know, and being, you know, curious and also, you know, being somewhat of a smartass, I was like, well, how the heck does a snake know what color it is? You know, Good question. And she and she actually told me she's like, you know, I thought the same thing, so I tried to test it. I put a black sock on my hand and went into the enclosure, and the snake backed away from it. Hmm. So I don't know if snakes are colorblind or not, but somehow they're picking up on you know different colorations somehow. I wonder. I mean, this sounds a little crazy, but I, oh, is no. there any kind of thermal difference between colors? I mean, I don't know because black, of course. Right, you, you know what? I never even thought about that. That yeah. you're probably right. Huh. 
But the idea of bringing together personality and memory in snakes, I just think, I mean, that's the stuff that really excites me. I don't really care that much about what species, but if, you know, these animals are thinking and feeling, that's what I think we all need to be really paying attention to. Right, right. And now, so your next book is on basically the uh, deeper emotional side of animals altogether, correct? Yes, I'm I'm moving away from considering only primates to considering um, lots of different species. Okay. So in being with animals, I started writing about um, buffalo, which I have a a deep love of for some Mm -hmm. unknown reason, and (laughs) elephants and that kind of thing. But I was pretty much sticking with mammals. And now with this new book that I'll be writing over the next six months, I'm exploring uh, birds, for example, corvids, like ravens. Oh, yeah and tortoises a little bit more and trying to approach this critically so that I don't just succumb to really easy anthropomorphism. In other words, I don't want to just believe that, you know, every animal that could have an emotion is having an emotion, but really try to take examples of potential expression of sadness or sorrow or grief and see how credible they really are. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding some really cool stuff in a variety of species. So that is a definite departure for me, and it's not what I expected. I expected to stick with monkeys and apes, but, you know, as I've been saying, the more I learn, the more I'm motivated by the scientific question rather than just the taxonomy of the species. Very cool. That's very cool. I'm very interested to read this uh, upcoming book. And speaking of books, um, listeners can pick up all of your books directly from your website, correct? Well, they are discussed on my website, and okay. I also have a blog that I write every Friday that I post on my website. The best place probably to get my books is either Barnes & Noble online, Amazon online, or, of course, I always push independent bookstores oh, because I, I love indie booksellers. Oh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all about independent. Okay, very cool. And uh, the website, just for everybody, is uh, barbarajking.com. And uh, that'll, of course, be in the show notes and um, in the sponsorship message as well. Um, once again, it's barbarajking.com. And uh, so far, we have Being with Animals and Evolving God and The Dynamic Dance. And then another book, um, Being with Animals, uh, came out in 2010. So this one will be coming out, you said, uh, well, will be finished in about six months, you said? Yes, I seem to be on an every uh, three-year track with my book. <laughs> okay. Um, the one, the t- dynamic dance with 2004 and Evolving God 2007, Being with Animals 2010, so I'm hoping probably 2013 for this one. Awesome. All right. And well, it was fun to talk with you, John. Thank very you very definitely. much. I really appreciate you being on the show. And so there you have it. That was Dr. Barbara J. King talking about the fear of snakes and where it might have come from. And uh, as we said in the show notes, you can find the links to her websites, her blog, and uh, as well as, you know, definitely pick up some of her books that she mentioned. Uh, they are all great reads uh, from what I've heard. I am picking them up myself uh, very soon here. And we look forward to seeing your comments in the blog and on the show notes as well. And we'll see you next week in the Reptile Living Room with John F. Taylor. Mm-hmm.